Hello and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and as always, I am joined by two people who are impressed by both the immensity and the infinitesimal, Tim McIntosh and Angelina Stanford. (laughs) How's it going? It's going so good. David, that was remarkable. That was a stunning beginning. <laughs> I figure we should just stop while we're ahead. I, Let's just end it right now. I need to. I need to start coming up with something from every story to introduce you guys. Introduce you guys. Why? A couple of weeks ago, I did the. Um, what was the one that I introduced you guys as? You were, oh yeah. I don't remember now that I've now that I brought it up. I can't remember, but that's one of my favorite lines from this story. He fake where. Yeah. He, he yeah, says if he couldn't impress the boy with immensity, he would try the infinitesimal. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, I'm not so, going to sit here and obsess about which one of us is which. No, I said you're both you're 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 impressed by both okay. the okay. immense and the infinitesimal. Okay. Um So, how's it going? Okay, so I'm just going to say I had a fabulous week. Let me tell you about my week. My week started <laughs> off by checking the mail and having you, a total surprise. Are you like, lying down right now? Am I lying down? Yeah, cuz I've got my notepad out. Yes. Okay, doctor. <laughs> this is not about my mother, though. Oh, it doesn't okay. books, so that's good. But <laughs> so I went to the mailbox, opened it up, and I had a surprise package in there from one of Dr. Ralph Wood's students, who sent me a copy of his book on Flannery O'Connor, and it was lovely inscribed to me by Dr. Ralph Wood. So I was, re- I was really excited about that. I'm super pumped. I can't wait to read it. Hoping to make time this week. It didn't happen, but that was really exciting. So I got a book. And then, of course, yesterday I got my Close Reads mug, and I tested it out, and it's amazing. Really, it's Does perfect. Does it work? Oh, my gosh. It's it's the per- perfect size and shape, and it feels so good, and it just drinks right. Like, you know how – I'm very particular about this. You know how I have a lot of handmade mugs. So not all of them are very easy to drink out of, or maybe I just have some coordination issues. I don't know. That's, it could be both. I was <laughs> going to say, the most likely scenario is that both – are at, are at play here. <laughs> things are, but anyway, it just—it's a good sipper. It sips well, no spillage. Everything's you know proper, proper speed of flow. All good stuff. I'm <laughs> loving it. I'm excited. Great, great. So yeah, and and am I am I right in saying it's kind of loaded toward the bottom? The weight is in the bottom. So can you, in theory, put it on your dashboard as you drive the winding you way know, to work. I bet you could just like stick some kind of like GPS suction on the bottom of that thing and do it. <laughs> wait, wait. I didn't follow that. GPS suction? Oh, you know, I see. those big, you know, rubber things that, <laughs> so you just stick your GPS to the dashboard, you know, just want to stick one of those on there. I will say it's been fun. I'm looking at the Facebook group right now and it's fun seeing people posting their mug shots. Oh, yes, um, so much fun. Mug shots, that's good. Hashtag mugshots. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Exactly. That's clever. Um. Oh, there's Angelina's. Angelina's. You got the red one, right? I did. Okay, so we've got a little business to take care of before we move on here, of course. Um, yeah, there was no secret backroom meeting to, to get a winner here. I felt a little out of the loop. <laughs> you mean you mean for the coasters? <laughs> yeah, like I thought we were gonna like wrestle over who had the best thing and now i'm finding out that was no no not happening well i mean i said that's because i specifically said it was going to be at random oh 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 okay well i wasn't <laughs> even in on the random <laughs> okay you know, i'm having i'm reading that hideous strength i'm very sensitive <laughs> about being pushed out of the inner ring okay 
just want to make sure you and Tim are not like in the library over drinks and cigars, like in the book, and I'm just on the outside. <laughs> no, don't worry, you're a member. Okay, so we so a couple things we got to take care of here. First of all, if you have not joined the aforementioned Facebook group, please head over to Facebook and and join it. Just type in Close Reads, and you know you should you should be able to find the group. Request to be added, we'll add you in. Lots of great conversation going on there. Um, some of it controversial, some of it not. Um, some of it just people enjoying the same things, the same books together. Um, but I love when people volunteer, like something related to a book we read way back when. And it's just, they're like, hey, I finally caught up with that. Here's a post that I find interesting, or here's something related to this. And it's, it's just cool to see, you know, people catching up or joining the conversation for the first time. So we're really happy to have you all as a part of that conversation, especially Angelina, who comments on there, who, who keeps up with all the responses for Tim and I. Um, the one who doesn't have a life. <laughs> I didn't say that. No, it's because you do have a life. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't see the logic there at all, but okay. <laughs> we can worry about that later. Um, of course. Two ways, when I'm procrastinating something, I'm really active on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So if you uh, if you go over to that Facebook group, you are going to see some, some uh, hashtag mug shots of people receiving the mugs that we mentioned. Um, if you would like to get one of those mugs, over, head over to CerseiInstitute.com. And over in the store, we have a few of those left in each of the four colors. I call the yeah, I call each of the colors Frodo, Sam, Mary, and Pippin. I've given them each a Hobbit name. So you can go choose one of those to be your drinking buddy, so to speak. Um, and then, um, you know, your your co- morning coffee buddy. Maybe I should maybe I should have qualified that a little. Um, and then, um, but I mean, no judging here, right? If you want to drink tea instead of coffee, by all means. Um, and Not then, at all. <laughs> so we, we just bu- say when we when we have something judgmental to say, we call it interesting. Exactly. I just, just waving the banner of all hot beverages over here. No judgment. All I, inclusive. Ironically, I just spat my Dr Pepper when you said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, yeah, we have a few of those left. There's not a ton left, and we're going to wait to order more Close Reads mugs until the fall um, to do a next run. But uh, we little little uh, teaser here. We are going to have some general Cersei mugs that are going to be coming out in time for the conference this summer. They're going to be a li- we're going to have a different shape, a different style, um, and we're working on those right now. So you'll be able to collect the whole um, you know the whole the whole series. Brian really wants us to get a Commons mug for him. <laughs> So we went ahead and just wrote on a on a sticky pad and then put it on a mug he already had and it's a really nice model. So you can see that picture as well, um, and and we'll see how popular that one gets. That's but, my favorite one. <laughs> but um, one more thing. I, lo- I love that his tagline is the comments that other Cersei podcast. <laughs> one of the other Cersei podcasts. One of the other, yeah. <clears throat> um, but one other piece of business, I want to say thank you to Roman Rhodes Media because they are making, they are underwriting, so to speak, this month on the Cersei Podcast Network. Um, oh, right on. Yeah, there, there are some good friends of ours. They are publishers of Classical Christian Curriculum, which is designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops. And they're back uh, with a giveaway for Cersei Podcast listeners. So each episode in the months of April and May, so this is every episode that we do in April and May, they're going to give away one of their 16 units from Wes Callahan's Old Western Culture series, which is a high school video course that guides you through the great books of Western civilization. So these are really cool programs. Wes Callahan is a teacher that's, he's just teacher par excellence. He's a great storyteller. So these, these Old Western Culture series come with, they have, they're complete with workbooks, discussion questions, readers, um, but so that in, those readers include some of the things that the, the um, these series you know ask you to read for the series. Um, they have 
Wes Callahan drawing from decades of teaching experience as he tells the story of Western civilization, integrating history, lit, theology, politics, philosophy, so much more. So here's how you can enter that giveaway. Uh, when this episode, this episode of the Cersei Podcast Network is posted on our Facebook page, so on the Cersei Facebook page, just leave a comment down there below the below that post saying which unit of the old Western culture series you would choose if you win. One of those comments will be drawn at random three days after this episode is posted. So this goes up on Monday. It's going to be drawn on Thursday. Uh, to browse their titles, just head over to romanroadsmedia.com to see the old Western culture series. Just click on the old Western culture. And, and so there's 16 units. So you can choose one of those. So there's probably going to be between... 15 and 25 podcasts posted in April and May. It just depends on the month and when things get posted and when the guests can come on for different shows and things like that. So for every single one of those episodes, Roman Rhodes is going to give away one of these things. So that's super generous of them. That's um, awesome. So again, all you got to do is head to their site, choose the one you would, you know, pick which of the series you would choose and then post that in a, as a comment under our uh, Facebook post for this episode. Um, you can do that either on the Close Reads group or on the um, Cersei Facebook page um, to, to do that. Um, so I hope that makes sense. Uh, RomanRoadsMedia.com to learn more about them in general. Um, of course, Wes Callahan, you can learn more about him. And he uh, is a pretty regular um, Cersei speaker. And, of course, he and my dad, Andrew Kern, do the Perpetual Feast podcast, which is just a conversation of, of Homer and all the things that Homer makes Wes and my dad think about it. That's a really interesting podcast too. So, you know, you can uh, catch that in the Cersei Podcast Network feed as well. Speaking of feeds, please make sure you subscribe to Close Reads and to the Cersei Podcast feed, um, Cersei Podcast Network feed over on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you get podcasts. And of course, if you just listen to it on our website, you are more than welcome to do that as well. Okay, business is out of the way. That's it. But first, I got to say this. Wes Callahan was in town a week ago. And I joked around with him about, do you remember when Tim called him the Johnny Cash of classical education? <laughs> I said, as soon as Tim said that, I felt like the Roman Rhodes guys were like, trademark, boom, it's our <laughs> thing. He laughed and he said, totally, that's totally what happened. So, and you might want to send them a bill for that because they've, they've capitalized on that ad campaign. You may, totally you may want to send them an invoice for that IP, I think. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> exactly. But see, Which I can, IP, I, David? You know, like intellectual property. Oh, I, see. I, I couldn't be outdone, so I told him that he might be the Johnny Cash of classical education, but I was the Lucille Ball of classical education. <laughs> <laughs> That's, well, you could have at least chosen a country singer or something. <laughs> okay, find me the screwball comedian of country music. <laughs> um, all right, well, let's talk about Flannery O'Connor and the lame shall enter Speaking first. Speaking of screwball comedy. <laughs> you know it's interesting so this is the what is this the sixth story we've done from her collection everything that rises must converge right. and this is a story that is in some ways a little different one thing I love about O'Connor is that while there are consistent themes and consistent ways of telling stories um, and, and, and like through lines through, through these stories they each are unique in kind of how they unfold and We've talked a lot about the kind of the the dark, gothic, um, grotesque aspects of some of her stories. But this one, in some ways, doesn't have that grotesqueness. It is dark. But it's, no, you're right. It's, I felt the same it, thing reading it. I kept saying, where's the, where's the weirdness? 
There's no grandmothers getting shot. There's no, well, I, or mothers getting shot. There's nobody getting gored by bulls. Um, or, and even there's nothing like what's in the Enduring Chill, where you've got this this um, direct line towards what seems to be, you know, this this really heightened spiritual moment, right? Possibly a, right. Conver- con- a conversion. This story is, it's, it's just deeply sad. Um, it's, it's very poignant. Um, there's lots of humor in it, uh, you know, per, per O'Connor. And sometimes I think it takes a second read to see some of the humor, but it's it, what ultimately it's, it might be the saddest, just the most directly sad story mm-hmm. that I've, mm-hmm. that she has. Um, mm-hmm. What do you th- do? You agree with that, or or would you disagree? Do you think that that grotesquerie is there, or or am I just kind of am I am I basically just? Can I follow do- up the question, David? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. It seems to me like I agree with you. There's something about the tone that feels a little bit less grotesque. But uh-huh. why does um, Rufus's club foot not strike you as? kind of the, the, the icon of the grotesque in this story. Well, I think it was her, her nod to that, but I don't, I just didn't find it an oddity like I did in the other, the things in the other stories, you know, like people throwing themselves on the ground and praying to snakes and, you know, that hmm. kind of stuff. That is a, I have to, I have to admit that is a great question. Why did that not strike me as grotesque? Um, I, maybe it's just a matter of degree. Um, Maybe it's because I don't know. Well, maybe we maybe we can figure that out. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll contemplate that while we're talking. That's a great question, Angelina. I I think that there was some of like the kind of um, southern barbaric Christianity um, in the words of Rufus describing himself as under the power of the devil. I mean, that sounded pretty. <laughs> um, it sounded a lot like Mrs. Greenleaf. Well, well, you know, while you were talking, I was wondering if what it is is that this world was not foreign to me. Uh, some some of the worlds that she she creates are very foreign to me and strike me immediately as you know weird and odd and grotesque. And hmm. maybe this one just wasn't foreign to me. This this story, I loved this story, and I didn't have any of that feeling of weirdness that I have in some of her other stories. You know, where where it just feels metaphorical and allegorical, and like all this stuff is happening. I I, I mean, part of it was the lack of nature stuff. Um, which I'm just a lot more comfortable in stories that are in the city than out in nature. I'm, that's just it is, reason it, for that. It, it is another story that seems to take place in one confined spot, um, at, at least as far as it, mostly it takes place in the house f- for the most part. I yeah, mean, you've got the yeah. scene out by the baseball fields, the little league fields, and but you know, and then it ultimately constricts and constricts until it gets into the attic. Um, did you so? I- so Tim, you read that as that 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 his foot as the gro- the grotesque. That's I did, the... I did. But at the same time, David, I agree with with what you said. There's something, and I think it's in the tone of the narrator. There's something. It, it just feels atmospherically a little less haunted that the pre- than the previous stories feel. There's a sense of there's a sense of doom in this story. Like, you know, from the beginning, there's a, there's something bad is going to happen, but maybe that's because we've been conditioned by O'Connor to know that it's going to happen. Um, but there's not that dark 
kind of Spanish moss hanging from the trees at one o'clock in the morning atmosphere in this story that I felt like is in every other story that we've read thus far. And, and I wonder, this is a little, this is a reach. I wonder if it's because her main antagonist is this, it seems like it's this enlightenment mindset. We've sometimes called it the modernist mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wonder if she's being delivered with her prose and keeping it a little bit more clinical than in previous oh, stories. Oh, you know, that is exactly the word I was thinking when you were talking. There's something very clinical about this, the way that this is written. And, the, you- even, and I think that, I think you're right, Tim. The stuff that comes out of Rufus's mouth in a different setting probably would have sounded crazy. I'm I'm under Satan's control and that uh-huh. kind of thing. But the way it's described, especially with him, uh, with Shepard countering it with some rationalistic explanation. Oh, he's just compensating. His pride is injured. This is about the foot. Uh, it, it just it's very clinical. It yeah. is. Can okay, um, let's let's talk about that a little bit then. Can can each of you take that a step further and be specific? I know you just kind of gave a small specific example of that, Angelina, but can you, can you show us what you mean by clinical in O'Connor's, in the way she's writing? Like, can you give us a specific passage and break it down for us? Hmm. I can give you a second to think. We can always edit that out. I'll just play the Jeopardy yeah. music or something. <laughs> yeah, that won't make me feel any pressure at all. Well, you, you can't, I'll just play it for the people listening. Tim, you probably yeah. can you hum that, Tim? Uh, Tim, do you? <laughs> it's kind of a Baroque interpretation of the Jeopardy thing. It was a little, a little doom, a little Larry O'Connor version of that. Thanks a lot. Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe meets uh, Jeopardy. So, Tim, do you have? I have a, a, I have a selection on my collection, uh, the Big Book, four fifty one. Okay, I just got to. How far into the story? About five pages. Mm-hmm. You know what might be interesting, pages, David, if we want to um, kind of show a juxtaposition, it might be nice to read this section for 451, mm-hmm. presuming it sounds clinical, and juxtapose <laughs> it with something from an earlier story that sounds a little bit more, my word, haunted. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe something from Greenleaf, because that, that's the one that's straight. Or maybe even something from... Um, Enduring Chill? Okay. No, no, no. Well, yeah, maybe Enduring Chill or well, maybe View from the Woods. Okay, now that you've named every single story, <laughs> uh, I don't even know where to go. Go ahead and share what you have, and I'll try to think of a passage while you're reading right. as we discuss right. it that we can compare it to. But I love the idea of a comparison. Topic of invention. I'll start with a little introduction so it's easy to kind of edit. So here's a section, David and Angelina, that I think might kind of serve to articulate the kind of clinical tone of this story. So on the collected works, their complete stories, it's on page 451, uh, third full paragraph. After that, he had talked to Johnson every Saturday for the rest of the year. He talked at random, the kind of talk a boy would never have heard before. He talked a little above him to give him something to reach for. He roamed from simple psychology and the dodges of the human mind to astronomy and the space capsules that were whirling around the Earth faster than the speed of sound and would soon encircle the stars. Instinctively, he concentrated on the stars. He wanted to give the boy something to reach for besides his neighbor's goods. He wanted to stretch his horizons. 
He wanted him to see the universe, to see that the darkest parts could be penetrated. He would have given anything to be able to put a telescope in Johnson's hands. Oh, man. Okay. That, wow. Okay, I just had a thought. But we need to talk well, about say, what you... Say, I want to hear it, David. Yeah! Okay, so... Well, we need to talk about this clinical thing because I think you're. I think what this idea of it being clinical, I'd never that word had not struck me, but I think you were totally on to something there. But the idea of him, that he says he wants him, he wanted to stretch his horizons and he wanted to see the universe and to see the darkest parts of it penetrated, goes back to the idea of like the spiritual world and the physical world being connected. And then you get that in the end, right? Like this whole story seems to be about them arguing about whether, like Shepard in his head, he's like insisting that the spiritual world and the physical world are disconnected but rufus is kind of almost saying that they're together right like the space yes like space out there like somehow they're drawing this connection between the physical world and our world the spiritual world um and our world i mean and the spiritual world being up in space and like that whole that whole like connection that whole metaphor is incredible and then what happens is to see the darkest parts of it penetrated and to broaden horizons is essentially what norton then is pursuing right yes like to be to penetrate he wants himself to be able to penetrate the darkest parts of the world to get to his mother so that this line here being you know way early in the story of a very this is her longer story i think that's you know that sets that up so perfectly later on even with such clinical prose as you put it so so anyway so we, i want i want to even expand, expand on what tim's saying two pages earlier is where i think it starts where we're going back and forth between psychological explanations for things mm-hmm. and spiritual explanations for things, right? So he starts off with the description on 449 of Shepard's office, and he says that he feels like it's a confessional. But yeah, and that's one – if you're reading in the, the collection of just these stories, that's on page 149. He had never been inside a confessional, but he thought it must be the same kind of operation he had here, except that he explained he did not absolve. His credentials were less dubious than a priest's. He had been trained for what he was doing. And then it goes on and it counterpoints his psychological explanation for everything with Rufus giving a spiritual explanation. So mm-hmm. um, he talks to Rufus and then it says, uh, the case was clear to Shepard instantly. His mischief was compensation for the foot. But mm-hmm. then you go down and, Ru- and, and, and Shepard keeps saying, look, I know. I know why. I know why you do what you do. I can explain to you why. And he says, I already know why I do what I do. Well, good, Shepard said. Suppose you tell me what's made you do the things you've done. Black sheen appeared in the boy's eyes. Satan, he said. He has me in his power. So they just keep going back and forth through the whole story with a psychological explanation and a spiritual explanation. I think part of the reason why the stuff Rufus says doesn't sound grotesque is because Shepard keeps giving us this very modern filter with which to see everything. And hmm. and it's our own filter as moderns. Yeah, and he's so our he's our perspective that. into the story. He's, he's our, our narrative. Right. And in Greenleaf, we don't have that. Mrs. May's like, why is this woman on the floor? And that's the uh-huh. only comment we get. Right? No, there's no rationalizing it away or giving a psychological explanation. Um, but I mean, Shepard, gosh, Shepard is us mm-hmm. so much, you know. And of course, he's he's ironically named Shepard because he's a bad Shepard. And yeah, well, yeah. And of course, at first, when you hear Rufus say, you know, I know I already know why I do it. And he says, Satan, he has me in his power. You know, the very first thing we get is Shepard. It says Shepard looked at him steadily. There was no indication on the boy's face that he had said this to be funny. 
Shepard's eyes hardened. So our response as we could just progress through the narrative with the narrator is to, because we're in Shepard's head, is to sort of reject that offhand, even if we believe, even if we don't think yeah. the way Shepard thinks, the narrative and the, the, the point of view that we've been thrust into causes us at first to disregard that as crazy talk, right? But then right. as you read the whole story and you begin to contemplate it and you think, well, if the explanation is just there's something about psychology, but then we start thinking about the idea of, well, it is just, you know, it's, the, the reason is sin, right? Like, the problem is that this, it's complex. Like, it is somewhere mm-hmm. between the psychological ideas that that Shepard says. Like, those things certainly impact the way we behave, right? But ultimately, he's not willing to accept that behind that behavior, and or at least in connection with those those things that impact the way we behave is also the effect of sin. And if you if those two things worked, if we think about those two things together, we can acknowledge the complication of it. And Shepard wants to oversimplify it. And as an as when we're looking at it as a narrator, like it, it, we can just reject this idea that it's Satan. But then when you think about it more, you can be like, well, I, Rufus is kind of right. And so yeah, but like through most of the story, you're kind of feeling like he's a crazy person, like he's Mrs. Greenleaf lying on the ground. Until you realize he's right. kind of not. <laughs> right, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I think might be um, useful to do is I'm, I'm, I frequently use the word um, clinical as sort of a subset of enlightenment or as one of the primary predominant traits of the enlightenment mindset. I know David used the word modernism, Angelina, maybe some other word. But I... I have a built-in conceptual I have a conceptual definition of what that is, but I wonder if it'd be helpful for our listeners to kind of talk for a little while about what we see, what the enlightenment was or what modernism is and to try to describe what changed from the end of the medieval world, the medieval perception of the world into the enlightenment because Angelina's right, we are kind of we're the heirs of the enlightenment. Um even if we are theists, um, even if we're old school theists, mm-hmm. societally speaking, we live in a world that is not metaphysically imbued with um, God's presence, uh, a tribe of angels, you know, conducting our every step. We, we live in a world where it's atoms clashing with each other. So anyway... <laughs> I realized, oh, you're actually like giving kind of a definition. You're, you're doing fine, Tim. <laughs> Nodding right along. So why don't, why don't I start and you guys can supplement um, the shortcomings in my definition. So the, I always date the beginning of the Enlightenment in 1641 with uh, the publishing of First Meditations by Descartes. The reason that First Meditations is such a significant move is that um, – Descartes writing during either during or shortly after the Thirty Years War, this this combat that engulfs Western Europe, combat between the Protestants and the Catholics, and it's a it's not just combat over um, religious differences, but it's also combat over who's the authority here, mm-hmm. and ha- how do we know who's the authority here? Descartes comes along and locates the authority within the self. 
the self is the authority. Um, I am the one who looks out and says, I have the ability to trust my own judgment and to say uh, the Catholic Church is right or the Protestant Church is right or neither of them are right. And with that move, which in the moment, like if I were to cart and I were in our part of the 30 years war, I would think that's a necessary move. These two warring um, religious factions are battling with each other, destroying Western Europe, destroying each other. Maybe there's a third way by which I can adjudicate who is the right authority here. But with that comes a severing of the Aristotelian Catholic Christian worldview, which in which nature is imbued with almost with God's life force, not in a pantheistic way, but God is present in the world, in the universe, governing, but not governing in some sort of abstract way. Like he, he, he God is active in the governance and creation of the world. And that the Enlightenment sees as kind of a superstition that is that gets in the way of scientific advancement, of, of seeing things the way that they actually are. Um, and so now, almost 400 years later, the kind of metaphysical presence of God or, or the angels or um, the singing of the spheres in, in Dante's world, that has been completely drained away. And we're left seeing the world as basically just a series of causal incidents of atoms clashing into each other. And there's no real sense of, um, of purpose, of metaphysical reality. And Shepard, in our story, is the articulator of that. Everything has a kind of like psychological cause. Rufus is the product of a series of psychological causes. And Rufus is kind of counter-arguing, no. I've made volitional choices and I live in a spiritual world in which the devil has chosen me or I've chosen the devil. Um, and that's the real world that is, that we're inhabiting. Absolutely. I agree with all of that. And you know, when you, when you pose the question of, can we give a definition of the shift from the medieval world to the enlightenment? Uh, my first thought was, uh, how many days do we have for this episode? <laughs> Yeah. This is this is one of my great passions, and so I just want to make sure to our listeners that we point out that we are we are very much reducing this and talking about one specific area because really the implications of the Enlightenment are huge. There's almost nothing, not almost, there is nothing in our modern life that is not directly a result of what happened in the Enlightenment and is not a cataclysmic shift from the way reality was interpreted in, in the past. Um, we're unaware of that, of course, because, I mean, every breath we have taken has been the air of modernity. Um, I agree with everything you said, Tim. The only thing that I would add, just just to just to clarify for our listeners, is that when we say the Enlightenment roots authority in the self, the big the big thing that they talked about was being led by unaided reason. So it's not it's not mm -hmm. reason, of course, because the medi medievals did not reject reason. I mean, mm -hmm. look at Thomas Aquinas. For God's sake, the scholastics were all about reason, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
But this unaided reason, reason that is not aided by biblical revelation, our tradition, our history, mm -hmm. our, uh, n there's, no, there's no added weight that comes to, from the voices of the past. It's all my unaided reason. What can I interpret completely on my own, uh, which quickly becomes what can I interpret via my senses? Mm -hmm. um, and that becomes the only real thing is the things that we can experience through our senses. And therefore, the whole transcendent universe is rejected. It cannot be experienced through the senses. It cannot be weighed and measured. It cannot be quantified um, and objectified. So those things are not real. And that, like you said, that is who Shepard is, right? Doesn't it doesn't even cross his mind that, sure, he's suffering psychologically, Rufus, but he's also suffering from a lack of transcendent things like love. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And his own child is suffering from a lack of love and is grieving and has spiritual needs that Shepherd cannot understand because he's just saying, it's been a year, this is not normal, carry on. Um, that opening scene of juxtaposing the Rufus and Norton was so brilliantly done because Shepard is, is saying, how would you like it if you had to eat out of a garbage can while his son is literally eating garbage in front of him, right? Ketchup uh -huh, on a uh -huh. cake that's stale because there's no food in the house and he's eating junk. He's eating gross old garbage. And and so you just have that horrible disconnect all the way through about what these children really need because he's so And Shepard's lack of love blinds him. It absolutely blinds him. The rejection of the metaphysical reality of love in favor of this kind of supposedly deeply penetrating telescopic vision of the universe it's it's narrowed his gaze so much that he doesn't even see his own son. Yeah, let's lead, let's read the last let's read the last paragraph, just a sentence here, oh, and we'll have to talk brutal, about it a huh? lot. But you mentioned that his 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 lack of love is blinding him. Yes. But it says now, if you've read the story, you know what happens. But um, it says he saw Norton at the telescope, all back and ears, saw his arm shoot up and wave frantically. A rush of agonizing love for the child rushed over him like a transfusion of life. The little boy's face appeared to him transformed, the image of his salvation, all light. He groaned with joy. He would make everything up to him. He would never let him suffer again. He would be mother and father. And so you're talking about the idea of like the absence of love blinding him. But mm -hmm. I love what she does here because she, this, she's actually speaking to that, right? The little boy's mm -hmm. he, um, a rush of agonizing love. That's a really interesting word. Agonizing oh, love so rushes over him like a transfusion of life. And the little boy's face appeared. The image, the light, you know, all these different words that are sp speaking specifically to vision. Like his eyes have been yes. opened. Um, and then he's, you know, ultimately it doesn't right. end he up that way. He has his own enlightenment and it's to stop thinking like an enlightenment person. Yeah, yeah, perfectly said. Yeah. I, I, can I say one other thing about the Enlightenment, and then we can get on with the story? This might just be my own little um, – come just from my own experience. I, I think some Christians who run in academic circles or who come from kind of like – that are involved in colleges and um, intellectual traditions, some look at the Enlightenment um, with a very jaundiced eye. Uh, and, and they tend to, and I, and to some degree, I look at the enlightenment with a jaundiced eye, but I think there's a specific part of the enlightenment that they look at that creates, they brand the enlightenment in a way that actually creates confusion and does not create vision. And I think it's this, 
some people say that the enlightenment was a bad thing because it located the onus of authority in the individual rather than something like the scriptures, church tradition, Aristotle, what have you. And I recognize why people see that as a danger. However, for me, that is a, that is, um, how do I say this? It confuses ontology and epistemology in a way that is very confusing. And so ah, what I mean okay. is, um, epistemically speaking, I think it is a good thing that we consider ourselves to be the primary, um, we are the ones who have to make judgments. We are the ones who have to make assessments. And we are the ones who have to decide which authority is the true authority, which authority is a good authority. Um, but the danger is if we mistake our individual responsibility as the person who decides with the ontology of but God is the ultimate being. The scriptures are um, his authoritative witness to us. And I think sometimes Christians can confuse epistemic, that, how do I say this? They can say, I think it's smart to recognize that epistemically speaking, we are responsible, but if we are a responsible epistemic agent, then we should, we ought to, arrive at a place where we recognize that ontologically speaking, we are lesser than. We are lesser than God. We are, we are below his witness. Does that make any sense? No, I think I'm tracking with you. I, have not, <laughs> I find that interesting because I've not run into that particular problem. I think that uh, Christians get upset about the wrong stuff about the Enlightenment and don't see how how much they're being Enlightenment thinkers even in that in that moment. Um, you know, I just I think even modern Christians are so horribly reductionist and reject tradition just as much as it, just as passionately and fiercely as any Enlightenment thinker would have. So, um, well, that goes back to that quote that I posted on Facebook yesterday, Tim, about tra oh, yeah. about oh, tradition right. from Gregory Wolf. Right. Well, it's not from Gregory Wolf. He posted it in an article that I'm Jorah editing. Pelican. Yeah, by Pelican, yeah. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And I suppose I should add it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. And that's Yaroslav yeah, exactly. Pelican, yeah. So the difference between tradition and traditionalism plays into this. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just think that accepting that we are kind of the that we're responsible for adjudicating well, making good judgments, and, and not um, yearning for the time where the authority, where we were not, we, we did not see ourselves as responsible for making those judgments. I think actually it's an improved situation that we're in now when we recognize it tends toward individualism. It tends, it has the capacity uh, to say, Tradition is an enemy. God is not above me. He's below me. I see that those are potential tendencies, but I still think it's a, it's a good move to recognize that individually speaking, we are, um, we are responsible for making true and good judgments. I think I see the distinction you're making. Like you, you're, you don't like that 
someone can point to tradition as a way to sort of shirk their moral responsibility for the things exactly. that they believe, right? Exactly um, right. So I would completely agree with that. I would completely, not everything that happened in the Enlightenment was just because everybody woke up one day and decided to be idiots. You know, there was a lot of problems. There was traditionalism <laughs> over tradition. There were people shirking their moral responsibility and saying, well, you know, it's what the priest taught me, so I don't have any responsibility to make sure it's true kind of thing. Um, right. So I agree with you. It's just, of course, the pendulum swung and they threw the baby out with the bathwater and the unintended consequences, which is always, always what happens, right? When the pendulum swings too far and you end up creating a worse mess than you started out with. Because, you know, now instead of everybody shirking their moral responsibility and saying, well, you know, that's what tradition taught, now everyone shirks their moral responsibility for you can believe what you want to believe and it doesn't matter and what I believe doesn't matter and just right. be happy and, right. you know, it's two sides of the same coin. But I, I agree with you. I see the distinction you're making. I do agree. David, when you use the word modernism, are you using it roughly as a synonym for the Enlightenment? probably it depends on the context <laughs> yeah mainly yeah i suppose primarily but but i mean i i don't know yeah it depends on the context because i'm talking about literature or film or you know various art forms or whatever I, I could be meaning it something differently um but hey i wanted to take a halftime break here because we have to give away those coasters so we need to cool, we need to yeah. do those two names at random then we can it's a good as good a time as I need to take a little break. People who are not naturally philosophically inclined or not inclined towards philosophical conversation can go to the bathroom, get a drink, <laughs> go get some popcorn, <laughs> take a quick break while I give away these uh coasters and you know, come back and join us for the rest of the conversation about the story. But okay. So, I need a drum roll please. Go for it, Tim. <laughs> All right, so it it's working. It working. All right, we so need a the bigger first... sound effect budget. <laughs> oh no, this I, I'm not paying for anything more when we could just go with that. Um, the first coaster goes to Nicole Boyd. So congratulations, Nicole. She said that she loves the Close Reads podcast because it has challenged her to read new authors like Flannery O'Connor and Wendell Berry. The discussions are always interesting, and they have made her a better reader. It also makes cleaning her house much more entertaining. <laughs> so thank you, Nicole, for that. Very kind thing. You know, I didn't. I thought I thought people were going to be a little more mean about this, but I kind of like it. It's all these compliments. Um, okay, so we need another drum roll, please. Angelina, you want to try this one? Oh heck no! <laughs> and this one goes to Diana Nelson, who loves listening to the podcast because it helps her choose among all the great literature out there what to read and study next. So, congratulations to Nicole and Diana to get those. Please just. You're on Facebook. Um, just find me on the on the page and send me a message, and we will get those sent to you right away. So congratulations to them. All right, with that, ha halftime is over. Hurry up, get back in here. You know, get back in your seat, get that popcorn. You know, bathroom breaks are over. Short, you know. Yes, because we got to talk about child suicide. Get ready. Uh. So I wanted to go back to something we were talking about there, though. You read that passage, Angelina, from early in the story about where he talks about his office being a confession, being um, like a confessional, and how he'd never been inside one but he thought it must be the same kind of operation um and i think it's really interesting that you mentioned clinical tim because in that we get both of these ideas combined into one sentence from o'connor right um the idea of a confessional but she, but he mm -hmm. views it he even uses the word operation which he's not yeah. he doesn't oh, mean wow. it within that context like he's not thinking of a surgical operation but o'connor is probably not you know, fooling around. It's not an accident when she says that he thought it must be the same kind of operation, except that he did not absolve. And when you think about the idea of 
absolution and repentance. And you then you think about the idea of a surgery and operation and what its purpose is, you know, especially, you know, almost almost every kind of operation is meant to either resolve or get rid of something, right? Like if mm-hmm. you're trying to get rid of a tumor, you're trying to get rid of, um, I don't know, whatever it is. It's, 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 there's the same, it's almost, there's a, you could use that as a metaphor for what happens with absolution, you know, especially given that O'Connor is, um, Catholic. So I think that's really interesting because that, that word itself is very clinical. Um, what do you operation? The word operation is very clinical. Yeah. So she's right. being clinical in the way she's writing. And you look at the passage that you read, there is a, there is a clinical scientificness to it, but she's also mm-hmm. in doing that. She's creating these juxtapositions and creating these, you know. Oh, yeah, and that great sentence, his credentials were less dubious than a priest. Yeah, he had been yeah. trained for what he was doing. I mean, that just goes to the heart of what we were talking about, right? So a priest has got, you know, 2,000 years of tradition training him for this, and this guy just dismisses that as dubious, right? I've been to college. I've got a degree in sociology or psychology or whatever, so I'm— much more trained for this. But mm-hmm. but then she talks she uses she talks about confession, right? And so there's this idea of repentance, of confession, of absolution. But that comes back later in the story. Mm-hmm. So if you go towards the end of the story, in my book, it's gonna be on page one eighty three. It's about five or six pages short of the end of the story. You get this part uh where he talks about how you know they're talking about how Rufus learned to steal um and he's talking to he's accusing norton of being shepherd is accusing norton of being a problem he says oh you've learned to steal now and then johnson says uh rufus johnson whichever you know name you want to go with he says no he ain't i was the one lifted it he only watched he can't sully himself i i don't make any difference about me i'm going to hell anyway shepherd held his tongue Unless, Johnson says, I repent. Repent, Rufus, Norton said in a pleading voice. Repent here. You don't want to go to hell. Um, Stop talking this nonsense, Shepard said, looking sharply at the child. If I do repent, I'll be a preacher, Johnson said. If you're going to do it, it's no sense doing it halfway. Oh, that was the best line. Yeah. um, And right before this, before this is going on, Shepard walks into the room and Norton and... Uh, uh, Rufus have been sitting on the couch and they're reading together. And he says, what's that you're reading? And Johnson says, the Holy Bible. And then the guy, Shepherd says, God, give me strength under his breath. I know. Which is (laughs) like, and in, so he, like he, he basically just prayed right towards the end of the story. He asked God to give him the strength. He doesn't mean to, but like, you know, O'Connor talks in other places about the power of words, right? And the words, mm-hmm. the things we say mean something like far bigger than any, even what our own intentions could be. And I love what she's doing there because he says, God, give me strength. And then we go into this whole thing about repentance leading to the end of the story. Um, mm-hmm. What do you guys, what do you guys think O'Connor is saying about the power of repentance here? Because what Rufus is saying almost feels like it could have been drawn from a billboard on the side of the road, Right. Like a lot of his. Oh, he even makes that right. Doesn't Shepard say Rufus learned his theology from the repent signs on the side of the road? I think he I think does say I, something to that effect. Yeah. As a condemnation, though, he's he's. Oh yeah, right. Being demeaning. Right, right, yeah. Um, and it's sort of true. Like they feel like they could have been drawn from that. And so, 
on in one sense you've got the Rufus being the Mrs. Greenleaf type of character. Like there is something stereotypical or at least archetypal about about this character. But O'Connor is also saying something much more something deeper and more complex about repentance and confession and not just confession, like in the confessional, but confession as a spiritual exercise in general. Um, At least that's the effect. That's what I, that's what I, the sense that I get. Do you agree with that? And if so, where do you think she's going with that? I, I do agree with it. Where do I think she's going with it? One of the things I kept thinking about as I read this story was a a sermon my priest had given a while back, which he said something in that sermon which has just stayed with me so strongly as I have tried to to get it sorted out in my mind what all the implications are. And he said, um, if you're trying to change someone, you're not loving them. But if you love them, they will change. And I kept thinking about that as as I read this story. You know, Shepard doesn't love Rufus. Right. This is about Shepard's ego, his savior complex. Rufus even says the guy thinks he's Jesus Christ, right? Um, this is all about him. And he doesn't like his son because his son is not feeding into him. It's not mirroring him back. And he's hoping Rufus can just hmm. be a, a, you know, a check in the box of I accomplished something. He's trying to save Rufus, but he's he's really just trying to feed his own ego. That, that mirror idea is really interesting because he wants him to be a mirror back to him. But he yes, views he Norton and, as and the grotesque, not Rufus. Yes. Norton is his mirror. Rufus even says, oh, I can tell you're his kid. You look just like him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he, he rejects that image. Shepard rejects a lot of things through the story. He rejects Norton. He rejects the image of himself reflected back into himself. And he rejects any kind of repentance because his mantra is, I've done nothing. I've got nothing to be reproached for. I've done nothing. Who does? I've, I've done everything right. Shepard. Shepard. Well, it's really interesting that you say that, but but because because I think he actually it, him his spiritual awakening, so to speak, is really interesting and it takes a while. But it's really interesting that um in most of her stories that we've read so far, it is a child who's going home and doesn't want to be like a parent. But here oh, we have yeah. a parent who sees himself in his, or sees something in his son and doesn't want it's a great to be like David. the child or wants that his child is. to change. And one of the things that struck me as so profoundly sad was that Norton defeats his father. He's loyal mm-hmm. to him, uh, to Rufus, and he just keeps getting you know dismissed and basically kicked in the teeth he's, by his dad. He's lonely, you know. He, mm-hmm. He's so They're lonely. They're both lonely, and that's that's another mirror there. They're both lonely. But even the way that they're like, it's okay. So for all that Shepard is Mr. Modern Psychology and get over it and we can control our emotions and enough grief already, let's move on. He's kept her room like a shrine. That was so brilliant on her part that he scolds Norton mm-hmm. for kind of holding on to his mother's memory for too long. Mm-hmm. And it, by implication, he's past it. He's over it. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to the room with kind of like, which is basically kind of a sanctum of his wife's to his wife's memory mm-hmm. You're like you ain't over this buddy you're not over this at all and you shouldn't be mm. yeah yeah that's that's great he, he he shouldn't be he is not willing to to al- to be a human well yeah exactly but he's not willing to let his son grieve and they're not there to he won't grieve with him he you know mm-hmm. he 
it's only been a year. You know, he said something like, it's, he says something like, it's already been a year. And in my head, I'm thinking right. it's only been a year. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, but you see, that you? could it's very awesome. well be, if we want to give a psychological explanation, this could very well be that the point of Shepard's rejection of Norton is that he's trying to deny his grief and Norton is a walking reminder of it. And so it's like, we have to snap mm. out of this. We, mm -hmm. But it's not true, of course. We, I mean, he can't sleep in the bed that he shared with his wife. I mean, that is so poignant. That's such a poignant image that this man it is. is. Mm. Hey, just I have a passage that I, I, as I was flipping through the story, I think really speaks to a lot of the stuff Tim's been getting at with this whole enlightenment thing. All right. um, it's it's about three pages in after section two starts. So right okay. after he gets the telescope and Shepard's giving him, you know, this be all you can be speech. What, pa what page <laughs> is it in your, in your uh... 461 in my okay. book. And what's the first, how, how, where's the paragraph start with? Uh, astronauts, knots, nuts or knots, that. So going down yeah. a little bit. Okay, so in so in, my, in, in the other edition, it's 164, just for people who are reading along with that book. So nuts or knots, Shepard said, it's perfectly possible that you, Rufus Johnson, will go to the moon. Something in the depths of Johnson's eyes stirred. All day his humor had been glum. I ain't going to the moon and get there alive, he said. And when I die, I'm going to hell. It's at least possible to get to the moon, Shepard said dryly. The best way to handle this kind of thing was with a gentle ridicule. We can see it. We know it's there. Nobody has given any reliable evidence there's a hell. Hmm. The Bible has given the evidence, Johnson said darkly. And if you die and go there, you burn forever. Um, oh, and then he Is goes it, on, whoever says it ain't a hell, Johnson said, is contradicting Jesus. So you're having a real... Uh, this is an epistemological argument right here. You have the whole uh, faith of a child thing at play in this story, too. Absolutely. Yes. This is the first moment where we see Norton yes. kind of convert to Johnson. He, yes, the child leaned forward. The child yes. leaned forward. Mm. Yes. That's a great this point. Is the, this is the knowledge he's desperate for. He's desperate Absolutely. to want to know what happened to his mother. And you know what mm. else is interesting is that Norton said, and Shepard says at some point, oh, it would have just been so much easier if I had said she went to heaven. Yeah. If only mm. I didn't have such a commitment to the truth. But if he had, and the funny thing is, if he had not, then Norton probably never has his, his, his I don't know if we can want to call it conversion, but he never, he, he never moves that direction towards Rufus because he would just, it would just be, he would have just accepted whatever version of it that, that Shepard gave him. Right, but I love right. that you. So I mean, I don't know how that plays into it, but it's it's interesting. But I loved him that you pointed out that the child leaned forward because that's one of those lines that in that feels like a throwaway. It feels like a like a. Oh no! I underlined that and wrote in the margin too. That was a great. If, line. if you're just if you're not paying if you're not reading closely, so to speak, then it's easy to oh. just gloss over it. You know, where, <laughs> because where it's um, it's just texture, right? It's, you know, it's characters moving around. It's theatrical. Yes. It's it's just moving the narrative forward. But, see, but building on this, but a great right, writer she, does more. Yeah, she's she's so she sets this motif of Shepard has nothing to teach these boys, right? He sets himself up as I'm the teacher, but they keep showing. She keeps showing that he doesn't have anything to teach. So the child leans forward. He wants the knowledge that Johnson has. And then later, there's this parallel scene when Rufus is going to eat the Bible, right? And then um, Shepard says, just eat your dinner. And he stands up and he says, I can't eat any of your food. Because he, what he's saying is, you can't give me the spiritual food that I need. What you're offering is not food for me. I love this because as you're saying, he, he's about, as you're saying this, I just wrote in the margins next to the child lean forward, he's hungry. 
Yes. I love that. All these images of eating and devouring in this story. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we could talk. We could look. I mean, if we had more time, we could be looking at so many of these individual lines and how they all add up. It's, but, it, man, this is this is why she's so good, and this story in particular is so rich. Oh, yeah. Um, and also, look at the – okay, so go on. You're saying the child's starting to have this spiritual epiphany at the bottom of 461. So, you know, they're, they're getting off the track now. Shepard's losing control of the conversation. It's turning spiritual. He said, listen, Shepard said quickly, and pulled the child to him. Okay, so the child has leaned forward to Rufus. Shepard pulls him back to him, and he says, listen, your mother's spirit lives on in other people, and it'll live on in you if you're good and generous like she was. The child's pale eyes hardened in disbelief. Mm. And then Shepard's pity turns to revulsion. Yes. And the boy would rather she be in hell than nowhere. And he That's can't, a potent lie. Yeah, right. He says, do you understand? But it's Shepard that doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that's the boy would rather be in hell than nowhere is is how Shepard is is seeing what his kid is thinking. It's not actually probably how Norton would put right. it, right? Right. This is a dismissive thing to say. Right. Like you you know, you little child, you don't know anything. You know if you turn turn a little later because this also plays into it. Um in my book it's one eighty four, so it's like five or six pages from the end. Or about 30, 20 pages from what you're just reading there. But they're talking about um, the Bible. At the top of the page, it says, put that Bible up. That's where that's where it'll start. Do you do you guys see that? Yes. There's a section break on the reading? next page. The Holy Bible. Yeah. I got it. Yeah, yeah. So he says. Four, so bottom of 476, Angelina? Yes. Okay. okay. So he says, Shepard says, put that Bible up. The boy stopped and looked up. His expression was startled but pleased. That book is something for you to hide behind, Shepard said. It's for cowards, people who are afraid to stand on their own feet and figure things out for themselves. So this plays to what you're talking about, Sam. Yep, yep. John- Total enlightenment. Johnson's eyes snapped. His, he backed his chair a little away from the table. Satan has you in his power, he said. Not only me, you too. Uh, I want to pause there because I think that's one of those, this is one of those things where if you were putting this on the stage... Tim, we should turn this into a screenplay because, or, or a stage play because it would be so interesting. How you say those lines would be so interesting to, to, to think about in terms of interpretation because he could say it very um, very darkly, you know? Satan, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know, kind of like it's in a Stephen King novel or something. Satan has you in his power, you know? Like he's almost threateningly. Or you could say it almost like he's enjoying saying it, like jovially. like Yeah, kind of blithely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or, he could, or you could have him say it... Um, in a disturbed way, like he's feel sorry for him and she doesn't really tell oh, us man, how he says right. it. So it makes it a really rich reading experience to just imagine, to interpret that how you want. So he yeah. says that then it says, then we get more like stage direction here, right? Shepard reached across the table to grab the book, but Johnson snatched it and put it in his lap. Shepard laughed. You don't believe in that book and you know, you don't believe in it. I believe it. Johnson said, you don't know what I believe and what I don't. Shepard shook his head. You don't believe you're too intelligent. And then this is so interesting. I ain't too intelligent, the boy muttered. I ain't, he says, it's basically he's saying, I'm not too intelligent not to believe this. You don't know nothing about me. And then he says, even if I don't believe it, it would still mm. be true. And the only mm. thing that Shepard has to say is you don't believe it again. He just reiterates that. He taunts him. He doesn't respond to the idea of if I didn't believe it, it would still be true. He just says, you don't believe it. And so both that and then this thing up there about 
um, figure things out for themselves. Those are both so mm-hmm. richly, you know, right in line with what you're talking about, about enlightenment. Well, you know, epistemology. Absolutely. And it goes Absolutely. back to then the idea of of belief and disbelief in what you just read, Angelina. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom of that page was the scene I was referencing earlier when he eats the Bible. Yep. Each the pages, and he says, I've eaten it, he breathed. I've eaten it like Ezekiel, and it was honey to my mouth. Leave this table, Shepard said. His hands were clenched beside his plate. I've eaten it, the boy cried. Wonder transformed his face. I've eaten it like Ezekiel, and I don't want none of your food after it, nor no more ever. And here, again, we if you were putting this on a stage, I love this stuff about O'Connor, because you could have a character saying these lines in so many different ways. Because on the one hand, when I first read it, it, it feels like he's like a like like a difficult child mocking an authority, right? But the line about um, the wonder transforming his face makes it feel more like he's having a spiritual epiphany, right? Like there's a, an yeah. awakening happening mm-hmm, here mm-hmm. that it's something so much deeper than just him mocking him. And Shepard seems defeated. See, the next line goes in. Shepard said softly, "Go." He's mm-hmm. defeated there. But the boy on the next page walks away with a jubilant voice. Yeah. So he has wonder and then he has joy. Mm. Yeah. And of course, joy is the word. He, you know, she uses the word jubilation here, but then she uses the word joy at the end about when Shepard has that moment where he realizes he loves the kid, loves Norton. Mm-hmm. She uses the, joy very mm-hmm. spe- the word joy very specifically there. David, you've got the insights of a director. Seriously, this, that's a couple of the lines that you've pointed out are exactly the sort of thing that a good director sees, like p- playing the lines as they might superficially appear in the text is a habit of bad directors, but finding how lines can be played um, in a different tone with a different emotion and that highlights something deep going on in a character. Yeah, that's what directors do. That's why you're the director of the show. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, you and I, I would, I would love the exercise of turning this into a short stage play. We should do that. I mean, we should a lot that. of it's been done for us anyway. Because <laughs> as I've been saying, it's, she's very theatrical in the way she writes. Like, I bet she would have been a, a, a script writer, a screenplay writer in 2017. I think she could have been. I. We could have well, a whole I mean, that's what P.G. Woodhouse did. You know, there's a fine line, I think, between the short story and the script. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the Faulkner, they're, they're both, Hemingway, yeah, they all wrote screenplays. Mm-hmm. You know, I, do you guys want to talk anything more about this particular part? Because I think this, we only have a little time left. We're over an hour now. And I, I think we should go back to this idea of repentance and talk about um, a little more about making the connection between Norton's death and Shepard's ultimate you know, yeah, suicide. David, I want to hear what you – that you saw a kind of repentance, I don't know, form. Is that the right word? Playing out here at the end of the book? I'd like to hear what you think about now, that. Now, is this – David, does this start to happen, you think, after the police come? Well, I think kind of what's going on is the stories. there's three different characters here. And if you want – since we're talking about screenplays and stuff, I think you could almost read this. I may be completely wrong about this, but I think one one way of reading this to help understand it is looking at it like an A plot and a B plot. And I think in one sense you have this, the A plot is what's going on within Shepard himself. And then the B plot is, the, and that's the through line throughout the whole story. 
because you've got his relationship with himself, his relationship with Rufus and his relationship with Norton. Um, but then you can also read it as, you know, what's going on in Rufus is, is he actually a bad kid? Is he changing? Um, what does the foot mean? All that kind of stuff. And then you've got what's going on with Norton and his loneliness. Um, and so you could think mm. about it like three, you've got this main character and then you've got these characters that are like B characters, but they're still really crucial to understanding and experiencing everything that's going on around it. And so I think throughout the whole story, you've got this process of change going on in, in Shepard where he is, he, 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 be, he, you feel like he's generous at first, right? He's misguided, but generous. And then he ends up, he keeps talking about how he keeps hardening himself. Like she uses words like, um, he turns away, he walks out, his eye, his face hardens, he ignores what the kid, what Rufus says, he hardens himself toward Norton, and that keeps happening. But then ultimately in the end, that gets, you know, something has to happen to pull him out of that. Um, so that whole thing is part of this transformation. And again, the word, that's another word that gets used is transformation. It, all three yeah. characters are transforming in some way. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know if I would say that it happens just when the police come, but that I think it comes to a head at that point. If that makes sense. Okay. I don't want to, I didn't, I wanted to explain that because I don't want to just say that in that specific moment, O'Connor is saying that there's change, but I think it becomes where the evidence of change begins to happen. Um, but if you look at, for me, it's on page 187. It, Norton, Norton has this moment where he looks up at the stars and he t- he's telling Shepard, I found mama. And it's so sad. Yeah. It's so sad. Ugh. Um, and there's, but there's a brightness about his eyes, right? It's sad, but so hopeful because he has a sense of hope about what happened to his mother, which is in such direct opposition to the despair and emptiness of what his yeah. father has offered him for a year. Not only has he not been allowing him to grieve, but he's not offering a sense of hope about what could have happened to her. And mm-hmm. he, so he sees her that in itself gives this child a sense of hope. Like there's this childlike wonder that leads to this hopefulness, which leads to this faith in him. But then the doorbell rings. Um, he says he's going to go downstairs. Um, he, well, actually, it doesn't ring. He goes to the he, – he's like, you go to bed. I'm coming back in 15 minutes. You better be in bed. Um, Which is a side note. Like, Shepard, his son is seeing or like catching a vision of where his deceased mother is. And Shepard tells him to go to bed and goes downstairs. I mean, like – what is wrong with this man? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, he it's, he wants he, he wants to grieve. This kid wants to grieve, and he just yeah, he just ignores him. He just leaves. Absolutely, there's so much that could be said about just what she's saying about parenting and about pedagogy and stuff in the story. Like those are things we can't even get to. I don't think today. But then, if you go down a little bit, he goes downstairs and he sits down. Right, he went back to his chair and sat for a few minutes. puts the, He puts his hands in the arms of the chair, leans forward. Whoa. There you go. Yep. I did not think of that. <laughs> I'm marking that. He... <laughs> okay, okay. All right. Okay. You're seeing the magic here live, folks. <laughs> I didn't make that connection before. But let's start here. Let's read this together. Tim, can you can you read starting with he went down the steps again? It's on 187 for me. It's about three pages from the yep. end of the story. 479, 479 for, for us. 479 for us. All right. You, um, so you want to read one paragraph, read, David? Read... The next two paragraphs. Right. He went down the steps again and returned to the parlor. He went to the front door and cast a cursory glance out. The sky was crowded with the stars he had been fool enough to think Johnson could, Johnson could read. Which also represents his wife. Yeah. The stars do. 
Somewhere in the small wood behind the house, a bullfrog sounded a low, hollow note. He went back to his chair and sat a few minutes. He decided to go to bed. He put his hands on the arms of the chair and leaned forward and heard, like the first shrill note of a disaster warning, the siren of a police car moving slowly into the neighborhood and nearer until it had subsided with a moan outside the house. He felt a cold weight of his shoulders as if an icy cloak had been thrown about him. He went to the door and opened it. Just, yeah, so, Two policemen were... You going to keep going? Um, let's just stop there for a second. So yeah. I think you're getting... I, we were talking earlier about repentance, and I think there's a transition that he goes through here, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. This is this is this is just something that I was been thinking about, um, and I think it's bracketed by these two sirens. Then then you leading into the kind of like the end of the story. I think this is kind of like our climax here, and it's bracketed by the two sirens. So he, he leans forward and heard like the first shrill notes of a disaster warning. So as readers, we should be thinking, mm-hmm. ding 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 ding. It's like, what do they say? What's the word in the Bible you should always look for? Um, when, when, therefore. Yeah, when, therefore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when you hear the word therefore in the Bible, you know, what, what's therefore, therefore, right? Um, so we get this disaster warning, the siren of a police car moving slowly into the neighborhood. And then he feels the cold, a cold weight on his shoulders as if an icy cloak had been thrown about him, which kind of harkens back to the enduring chill, right? Angelina, you talked a lot about that. Like the idea of the Holy mm-hmm. spirit as an icicle is something icy rather than as, you know, fire. So then the police comes, they talk for a little while. They, the, they bring the boy. Um, and then you have this moment where Johnson tells the reporter and the police officer that, um, Shepard made immoral suggestions. Uh, Angelina, can you read starting with Shepard's face? It's for me. It's on page one eighty at the next page. Okay. Read that next par- Read that next paragraph. Yeah. Shepard's face blanched. He caught hold of the door facing. Suggestions. The reporter said eagerly. What kind of suggestions? Immoral suggestions. Johnson said. What kind of suggestions do you think? But I ain't having none of it. I'm a Christian. I'm... Shepard's face was tight with pain. He knows that's not true, he said in a shaken voice. He knows he's lying. I did everything I know how for him. I did more for him than I did for my own child. I hoped to save him, and I failed. But it was an honorable failure. I have nothing to reproach myself with. I made no suggestions to him. Okay, let's let's pause there for a second. Um, then Then what happens is they get ready to leave... And then um, the police says, that'll be enough of you. Um, and they we just they just they they come by and they're basically like, we just wanted you to see that we got him. Then, as they're getting away, the paragraph says, the lame will carry off the prey. The boy says that. He screeched. But his voice was muffled inside the car. The reporter scrambled into the front seat with the driver and slammed the door and the siren wailed in the darkness. <laughs> and I think that moment, it's almost exactly in the middle of these two sirens where he says... I did more for him than I did my own child. I hoped to save mm-hmm. him, and I failed. And it's the first time he explicitly states that he had failed both of them. Huh. And there's like this moment where he's confessing it. He's saying it out loud. And it's, I mean, these two sirens seem to bracket that, and they're both signals of oh, warning. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And it says that the, when, it, when, it, when they leave the second time, it says that the siren wails. 
So first it's a siren that's signaling war. It's a warning distress signal, so to speak. But then right, this time right. it's wailing. There's something mournful about it. Yeah. And he remains there bent like a man who had been shot, mm-hmm. but continues to stand. So of course, if you know anything about O'Connor and her earlier stories, the idea of him being shot should harken back to a good man. is hard to find. Yes. And the yes. idea of, and you know, through this, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm talking well, too much this, here. Every time he says I did more for him than I did for my own, I kept thinking about comforts of home, right? And the mom there keeps her, – her responsibility to star, she feels, is I got to do as much for her as I was due for my own child. What if she was you? What if it was you that was like this? And this mm. is a complete reversal of that, right? Someone who wants to, quote, unquote, help others while neglecting his own child. Hmm. Tim, speaking of which, um, you got to leave. So can you read one more paragraph for us? Do you have time? Absolutely. Okay, read this next paragraph for us, um, and I, because I think, um, you know, this is the end of the story anyway. So this is, I think, this is where his his confessions and repentance begin to happen. Uh, and so the the paragraph that begins where Shepard remained there that I was just kind of touching on there about him okay. being shot. Shepard remained there, bent slightly like a man who had been shot, but continues to stand. After a minute, he turned and went back in the house and sat down in the chair he had left. He closed his eyes on a picture of Johnson Johnson in a circle of reporters at the police station, elaborating his lies. I have nothing to reproach, reproach myself with, he murmured. His every action had been selfless. His one aim had been to save Johnson for some decent kind of service. He had not spared himself. He had sacrificed his reputation He had done more for Johnson than he had done for his own child. Foulness hung about him like an odor in the air, Hmm. so close that it seemed to come from his own breath. I have nothing to reproach reproach myself with, he repeated. His voice sounded dry and harsh. I did more for him than I did for my own child. He was swept with a sudden panic. He heard the boy's jubilant voice. Satan has you in his power. I have nothing to reproach myself with. He began again. I did more for him than I did for my own child. And so here he's like, he's at the same time he's saying, I did nothing wrong and admitting what he did wrong. And the whole time he's like resisting. He's not willing to see his own sins, which you can't repent until you admit and see your Mm -hmm. own sin. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it says a minute below. He heard. Well, that, don't skip that line. He heard his that, voice what, as if it were the voice of his accuser. Yeah, that's what oh, I was going to so read. And he, oh, I'm sorry. He repeated the sentence silently. Keep reading that, Angelina. Keep going from there. Slowly, his face drained of color. It became almost gray beneath the white halo of his hair. Boy, so at the beginning, they described the halo where he thinks of himself, I guess, as an angel. Mm-hmm. The sentence echoed in his mind, each syllable like a dull blow. His mouth twisted, and he closed his eyes against the revelation. Mm. Norton's face rose before him, empty, forlorn, his left eye listing almost imperceptibly toward the outer rim, as if it could not bear a full view of grief. His heart constricted with a repulsion for himself so clear and intense that he gasped for breath. He had stuffed his own emptiness with good works like a glutton. He had ignored his own child to feed his vision of himself. He saw the clear-eyed devil, the sounder of hearts, leering at him from the eyes of Johnson. His image of himself shriveled until everything was black before him. He sat there paralyzed, aghast. It's like like he repeats his own innocence to himself so much that eventually he begins to see his own sins. And they... Yeah, right. And they... Yeah. He just opens his eyes completely. And and what... And he is... um, 
he's this is confession like he sees his own sins and then he's he's confessing them and then he has the moment where he sees the norton at the telescope all back in the ears and he sees his arm shoot up and wave like the kids like the waving thing is to me is also so sad because it's like he's waving goodbye yeah and then and then he has this moment where he sees the boy and he repents and he goes to him um but in that way it's too late but then the question is is it really is it hopeful that the boy goes to his mother and that that nor and that shepherd then has has repented or what does it mean like like is often the case in o'connor we're never going to know the answer for sure but that process is is so um it's so dramatic in o'connor's hands and yet at the same time it's so like we see ourselves in this so so easily right like we see our own resistance to our own sin where we can repeat over and over and over again i didn't do anything wrong until eventually you know god does something that opens our eyes and you know you know it's like peter he denies christ three times and then the they're the rooster crows and he's like, oh crap. He at the time he's saying it, he doesn't think that he's doing it. He doesn't remember, right? But then, right. but then all of a sudden he realizes it. Exactly. Anyway, Tim, you got to go. Do you have any final thoughts? Angelina and I can finish this up, but I talked too long there at the end. But I just I love how I love the observation. That was great. It was great. Like really something about the kind of similarities to confession. I think you're. I think that's right. It seems to really hearken to with what she's trying to do, and I, I love just that it's this, it's a Catholic writer getting what is essentially a Catholic idea about confession. Well, it's not just a Catholic idea, but it's an idea that Catholics and she in particular believed in deeply. But she does it within a context that isn't like, you know, she, she's not being like a Catholic evangelist. She's a smuggler. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, you guys. Thank you. See you, Tim. Tim. Angelina, do you have any final thoughts on any of this or on this story before we go? Again, I I, Um, I did kind of commandeer the last the last ten minutes, but great. I I enjoyed it a lot. The only thing I guess I'm thinking about is that you can challenge my reading. (laughs) Well, I just think that there might be a temptation to to say, well, religion is bad. It left this boy to kill himself, Um, and this is what's wrong with religion. It's dangerous or whatever. I mean, because I think that. They're just two extremes. I mean, Norton needs a guide, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's not that the Christian beliefs are wrong. It's like he's a child and he misinterprets what he's told. And he's so desperate to be with his mother that it, he goes to this extreme end. But if his father had at any point led him through this, mm-hmm. um, then, then you know, it wouldn't have resulted in suicide. But I just think that there's the potential to read the story as religion is destructive. Well, and but it goes back to what Tim said is like, you know um, – religion like who's in charge who's the authority who's the guider oh exactly and and i was thinking the same thing norton is the victim of unaided reason here he thinks he understands the implications of eternal life and then he and then he kills himself Uh, but he's a child and he doesn't understand and he needed an authority Mm -hmm. and some tradition and and some context to understand these things it's funny that you mentioned that you could read it that way or that there's a temptation to read it that way but i've also read had i've read readings of the story that focus on how um, Norton's death could also be read as something hopeful. That he's well, I can see he's that. acting I mean, in he faith. Have childlike faith. He, uh, definitely, this is childlike faith. There's something so pure about that belief that his mother is there and that he's going to get there. It reminds me, actually, when my oldest daughter was really little, um, she had a, a a bird die, a pet bird, and we buried it in the backyard. And the next day, she woke up and she went outside really triumphantly. And I said, what are you doing? She said, 
I'm looking for the bird. It was resurrected, right? <laughs> that has just always so struck me like that, just that childlike faith that she just never doubted for a minute that the next morning the bird was going to be alive because hmm. we believe in the resurrection. You know, I had to correct that, obviously, but I was so profoundly struck by the beauty and the purity of that unquestioning faith. The other day, a couple weeks ago, Coulter had, was sick and he, he had a, like a fever, you know, just a normal five-year-old gets sick occasionally type thing for like a day or two. And he's lying there on the couch and he's miserable and he said something to Bethany like, what if I get so sick that I die? And, you know, she said something like, I don't think that's going to happen or whatever. And he said, he thought about it for a little bit. And he said, well, you know, I would really like to meet grand, uh, uh, granddad. I would really like to meet him. And yeah. if I got to heaven, I could meet him and all our other relatives who I never got to meet. And I could see what God's like. And it was just like the most, the most, you know, like you said, there's a, there's a purity to that. It's so unencumbered by um, the fears and the psychological issues that as older people we bring to our faith um, and the, the various experiences that we have. And I, so I love that you use the word purity there. And I think that there is something pure about Norton's faith. It's immature um, and it needs a guide, you know, that it needs a parent to help him um, grow in that. Um, but yeah, there is something pure about it. Mm -hmm. And even too, just going back to we were contrasting, you know, the more medieval way of thinking and the more modern way of thinking, the whole the way that they use astronomy, same thing, right? For for shepherd, it's it's stars, it's science, it's uh, you know, you can go to the moon one day, so it's a symbol of what man's progress and and that man can know everything. There's nothing unknowable. He even says this will, this will pierce the darkest places. That's very enlightenment. Nothing is unknowable. We can know everything. We can conquer everything. But then Norton looks at it and it's, it's this medieval stars and universe, right? It's, it's the heavens. It's not, it's the cosmos movements. It's the cosmos. It's the heavens, which that's how the medievals would have called it the heavens. So he sees it just ripe with spiritual meaning and God is big and, uh, it's a mystery out there, and my mother's out there somewhere. Mm -hmm. So, that, again, she's just contrasting those over and over. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really so well done. I really enjoyed this story. It's... And I did not remember how it ended, but I figured from the very beginning when when Norton had asked Rufus, you know, if I die, will I go there? That, that That's where the story was mm -hmm. going, but yeah, she said, I didn't remember it. As in every other story, you know, she signals where she's going. Oh, yeah. Um. Well, that's just true of any good writer and basically any kind of writing. Um, all right. Well, it's, an, it's been an hour and a half. Um, this is another great oh, one. Man. This and The Enduring Chill are probably my two favorites of her stories. I, I, I think this one is um, – there's something – the sadness about it – this is going to sound weird, but the, the sadness about it is appealing to me. Like there's just a – You got a melancholy nature, David. Well, that may be true as well, but just I don't know. I do. Um, and then the next couple we're going to read, we're going to read Revelation next and Parker's back. And those are generally speaking in my straw poll um, are most people's favorite stories. Um, so we've got three stories left in O'Connor, three more weeks, and then we'll do a Q&A episode. Um, but uh, please head over to Facebook and uh, join the conversation. Remember that if you would like to win some Roman Rhodes merch, uh, just comment uh, under this Facebook post, you know, when we post this link and say which of their... Um, which of their items you would like to to um, to win? Hey, actually, I've got a thought. Let's do this. If post it on the main Cersei page if you want to win something there, so that the the posting on the Facebook group, the Close Reads group, can be just generally speaking cons consist of conversation about the episode itself. 
I, so then it just doesn't it won't confuse things for when they're trying to pick winners so does, does that make sense yeah all right yeah. let's do that so if you want to win on the general Cersei facebook page post the unit from old western culture that you would like to win and again romanroadsmedia.com to learn more about that all right angelina thanks so much for another good episode thanks david this was fun for angelina stanford for tim mcintosh and for all of us here at Cersei, i'm david kern saying farewell on the Cersei institute podcast network we'll talk to you next week